Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, we are asking that age-old question, is it a brain? Is it a mind? Is it a soul? No, it's neurotheology. In light of marvelous advances in understanding of the brain and how it works and um, still very much unanswered questions about the nature of consciousness, not to mention the religious questions about spirit and soul and the image of God. We are going to be taking you into a mini dive into the field of neuroscience and ask, is there some kind of collision between traditional uh, Jewish and Christian affirmations about the human before God and what we have been learning about the actual brains that power us? Dad, what do you think? Yay or nay? Um, is there a collision? Well, there is a there is a tension to be sure, and I think on some level a conflict. And I would like to articulate that with a quotation from a theologian we both greatly respect from a book of his that you actually pointed me to, Ingolf Dalfurth's uh, Creatures of Possibility. Great book, and. Uh, This is what he says to the question about a collision, whether there is a collision between the doctrine of human beings made in the image of God and scientific research into the human brain. I'm quoting, From time immemorial, Christian theology has viewed human reason not simply as a distinct biological feature, but as the divine spark within the human person. It is therefore now defending traditional philosophical theological anthropology, namely, I'm inserting this, the idea that there is an immortal soul housed in a mortal body. Uh, That's the traditional philosophical theological anthropology, is being defended against current naturalistic trends by laying a great stress on human rational activity as that which distinguishes the human being from all other living beings. But, Dolforth points out, neither Paul nor John nor other New Testament authors wrote or thought in such terms. By contrast, Dolforth concludes, contemporary theologians consider themselves obligated to mount a defense against scientific progress and current naturalistic anthropology, Uh, of something that is not in any way their task to defend, namely, that a human being is not merely an animal, but a rational animal. End quote. Well, I think what we have, what we're dealing with is a moving target, both on the theological and the scientific side, because as we'll see, there are lots of different kinds of conclusions one can draw from the science, as well as lots of different uh, you know, assertions one can make from theology. So saying that we are no longer defending a certain view of the rational animal does not mean that therefore, for example, um, you know, a, a radically reductive scientism is therefore correct, As, uh, but we'll get to that as we go, I think. Yeah, we sure will. Well, because, uh, but I think what what's important to establish here at the outset, Sarah, is that there are certain boogeymen uh, that are that haunt the uh, imagination and inspire the fears of some uh, tra- traditional theologians who are defending soul body dualism, namely, as I mentioned, that the soul is immortal, 
but the body is mortal, something along those lines. Um, and by contrast, I think what I would want to suggest is what we have in common is the body to which the brain belongs. And that really should be a holistic uh, anthropology, um, a bodily, a body-based anthropology uh, that well suits uh, the biblical sources, as we'll see. But I think in order to, as you were just suggesting, the science can be taken in a number of ways. Let's try to understand the advances in neuroscience to which uh, Dalforth uh, refers. Okay, sounds good. Well, I, there's a book you want to talk about, and then there's a book I want to talk about before we get to the major book we'll be talking about. So why don't you go first? Okay, to prepare for this, um, among other books I've read, um, uh, and a wonderful, interesting access to contemporary neuroscience is the intellectual autobiography of Nobel Prize-winning Eric R. Kandel. The name of his book is In Search of Memory, the subtitle, The Emergence of a New Science of Mind. This is a wonderful read. He is a Viennese Jew, born around 1930, who as a child experienced the Nazi takeover of Austria. He was able to flee with his family to Brooklyn, where he spent a year studying in the yeshiva. He, he is a practicing Jew. Uh, at length, he was honored by the Jewish Theological Seminary of New York. As a young man, he was fascinated by Freud and psychoanalysis, wanting to understand how, years later, he could instantaneously be back in his small Viennese apartment worrying about his father, who had been arrested by the Nazis. How is the brain capable of that kind of memory? He came to believe that psychiatry was un unscientific, uh, or more precisely, psychoanalysis was unscientific, even though he thought Freud intended a scientific approach. And so, as he matured, he studied to be a psychoanalyst at Columbia, but he became fascinated by cellular research. Way down at the bottom of life, how could cells learn and retain a sufficient memory to adapt behaviorally? And to answer this question, how cells have memory, he studied a strange creature, a sea snail, because its cells were large enough to be manipulated with electronic impulses. And his life's work in this won him the Nobel Prize because it demonstrated how memory goes all the way down to cellular life. That is really phenomenal and amazing that a cell has a way of remembering and acting on what it remembers. That blows my mind. Yes. And so the capacity of the human brain to remember is rooted way down at the bottom here in cellular life. And that, Sarah, that, as he reiterates throughout his autobiography, two chief convictions. First, to understand a complex organism like the human brain, one must start at the bottom, reduce the complexity of a system like the brain to the simple mechanisms of the cell. And that is what is sometimes called scientific reductionism, a real boogeyman, right? And also, the second conviction 
is that this kind of learning, which enables basic memory, is to be understood in Pavlovian terms as a conditioned response. Thus, you have the two boogeymen for Western humanism, scientific reductionism and behaviorism, and a kind of explicit and sometimes even aggressive rejection of mind-body dualism. And I would just add to that, the, uh, if, if that, was, that was the full explanation and it was that simple, what that would also mean is more brain research means more totalitarian control. Because if that's all it is, if you can reduce it to cellular memory and you can manipulate it behaviorally, then ultimately you can control everybody. So I think that's the, the other threat that looms behind this possibility. Sure it does. And and it's not an empty threat. You can look at a society like North Korea and you can see behaviorism, uh, Skinner's Walden Pond too, uh, in, in realized right there in living color. Um, so there, the totalitarian possibility is not an idle threat or an idle worry. But here's, here's the takeaways uh, that, that, that Kandel himself uh, expresses. Neuroscience is showing that much of our cognitive and effective life is unconscious. A voluntary action occurs in the unconscious part of the brain, but just before the action is initiated, consciousness is recruited to approve or veto the action. So there you have a certain kind of freedom. As he puts it, our conscious mind may not have free will, that is, the will to spontaneously initiate something out of the clear blue sky. Uh, we don't, may not have the, such, that kind of free will, but it does have free won't. I can, I can, <laughs> I like say, no to, I can say no to the impulse that's arising out of my unconscious. Or another way he puts it, brains are automatic, but people are free not to do what they are inclined to do reactively. So I think that's a very interesting um, takeaway, right? That there's a certain kind of freedom, but it's not a, a sovereign freedom. It's a kind of servile freedom or a freedom. Uh, uh, a secondary, to, derivative a second, freedom. A derivative kind of freedom. And now here's how he really makes this apply to a, the human life. And it's interesting because he uses the example of religion. His, in his deeply Jewish family, his adult sister at length converted to Catholicism and had her children baptized. And this scandalized their profoundly Jewish mother. Candle interpreted his sister's conversion from his own memory of the yeshiva experience about what a deep religious conviction might mean to, to someone, especially by a person who must have been frightened on a deep level, and with her sister looked to Christianity to contain her fear. Now I'm quoting directly. We are all haunted by our own history, our unique problems, our personal demons, and that those experiences and fears profoundly influence our actions. So, end quote. So, what we learn, especially formatively when we're little, um, has a profound influence on us 
for the rest of our lives. We've all been children, and the, and the protection and nurture of children uh, profoundly determines what we will be as adults. Well, and in that respect, Freud was definitely on to something. You know, it's it's interesting he connects conversion with fear. And I, I don't think we should too quickly dismiss the good that religion provides if it can contain fear. There are obviously kinds of religion that amplify fear. But that does have a, a slight smack of reductionism to it, too. Like, well, you know, someone who's really fearful, really traumatized, you know, religion's fine for them. Um, and uh, I, I think we'll we'll go farther than that. <laughs> Yeah, we will. But the, the point is, is that before you ever act as an agent, you are a patient, you are a recipient right, right, right. Of, of very formative impulses. And the brain is, 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 is in many ways deeply imprinted uh, by these childhood experiences of trauma. Yeah, very true. Very true. Well, let me, I'll talk a little more briefly about the book I wanted to mention, which was the first one I really read about brain science, as far as I know. It's called The Brain That Changes Itself by a scientist named Norman Doidge. And um, it, it's it's sort of taking the same idea of cellular level memory and then starting to demonstrate how it actually works in brain cells and in neurons and synapses and all the chemicals and connections. And um, I think I read this maybe seven or eight years ago, and it had a very profoundly, almost ecstatic um, – I had an ecstatic reaction to it, which is I always – knew just from the experience of being human that there was some connection between all of the um, wisdom and culture and art and civilization and thought, thinking, feeling, and the physical animal that I am and the brain that powers all that. I knew that the two were connected. I never really understood how. Like, more or less figured, okay, some, somehow the brain is what integrates, you know, the experience of feeling and thinking with the actual, you know, bodily instantiation in the world. What this book laid out is how actually that works. And it, it's... um. It, it, he's summarizing a great deal of research. Uh, one of the kind of aphorisms of the field is neurons that fire together, wire together. So to give a really um, uh, <laughs> gross um, example, um, when two things happen together, they are forge a common path in your brain. So for instance, I have a very vivid memory one time of getting extremely sick from eating um, yogurt that had fungus growing in it. I won't explain how that exactly happened. It was the yogurt, I know for a fact, that made me ill, but I did not get sick until 12 hours later after I'd eaten dinner. And I remember dinner had um, corn and cheese in it or something like that. And so for a long time afterwards, because that is what came up, my association with being violently ill for many hours was the corn and cheese, not the yogurt. And afterwards, I had an aversive reaction for quite some time to corn and cheese, but not to yogurt. And of course, that is not... <laughs> an accurate depiction of what physically happened to my GI tract, but it is an accurate depiction of two experiences that coincide and therefore got wired together in my brain. And so this happens. So if you like had an unhappy experience in a city and you haven't been there in ages, you go back, you know, oh, it's been 30 years since I was in Cincinnati. And then you go there and you remember how your boyfriend of two years dumped you. And suddenly you're like, oh, I hate Cincinnati. What an awful place. It's not Cincinnati's fault. 
fault, but the two things got wired together in your brain. Um, and the, basically, the more you do it, the more the stronger the connection gets. This is why we have memorization, repetition, and liturgy in church, because uh, people with dementia can still say the Lord's Prayer. Why? Because it is so deeply engraved. It's hard to come up with good metaphors, but I'm going to try to avoid computer ones. Um it's so deeply engraved in the brain by the sheer force of repetition. There's also the fact that the brain does not like only repetition. It also likes novelty. It likes to forge new paths and new connections. And that leads to the other extraordinary fact, which is that, as far as we know, a brain is the most complex object in the universe and has more connections. Each brain has more connections than there are stars, which is... a uh, in incalculably huge number. So um, it, it's hard to believe that that's possible, but surely mathematically, because it's not just neurons, but neural connections to each other and varieties of connections. If you, if you understand how math works, the exponential geometric growth is just phenomenal. So that is why we can have, based on this piece of meat in our, well, I guess a brain isn't really meat, it's more like fat, but um, why we can have such incredibly rich and complex inner lives, experiences, we can take in so much information. There does not appear to be a limit to the number of things humans can take in. Uh, recalling it is different from uh, recognizing it or remembering it. Um, so the brain is phenomenal, <laughs> and that is deeply connected to who we are as people and interesting research into like people who have brain damage and how that affects them, sometimes to the point of radically altering their personality, has been conclusive proof that the persons we are, what has been with a placeholder concept of soul, um, that thing is rooted in the brain. And the final thing I just want to say I learned from Deutsch's book is at the end he says, civilization is is only one generation deep. And I think this connects back to what you're saying about children and their formation, which is our brains are indeed evolved and structured to receive um, inputs from the outer world. They want to respond a certain way, like human beings want to learn language. We have the spectrum of colors we can see and the ones that we can't. So there's all those things waiting to receive. But all of the stuff that we know about how to handle ourselves in the world, how to relate to other people, what the good life is, all of that has to be learned. And it has to be passed on from one generation to the next. And if there is a failure in the cultural transmission of this important things, then civilization goes down. And we have seen that <laughs> in human history, both um, in deliberate decisions to reject wisdom of the past, as well as in more tragic losses due to, you know, like a colonial disruption of native ways of being. Um, so I, I think that's that that is what kind of got me jazzed to pursue this topic of of what it means to to think and be a, a mind, a soul, a spirit, a brain whatever we want to call it. And um, that is why I ran across the book we're going to spend the rest of our time talking about by Ian McGilchrist called The Master and His Emissary. And this is going to take us more deeply into how the brain itself functions and what that means for the experience of thinking and knowing. Yeah, Sarah, the subtitle of the book is The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World. And um, that is kind of uh, forms a nice segue to what you were just saying about how how fragile culture is and how easily uh, culture can collapse. Because a major theme of, of McGilchrist's book 
is what's gone wrong with the modern West. And he's trying to explain this in terms of um, a scientific, a neuroscientific insight into the two hemispheres of the brain and how they connect to each other. Um, now, there's a lot of silliness that's going on with left hemisphere, right hemisphere stuff. Oh, yeah. We should just say this This is primarily a book about the difference between the two hemispheres of the brain, which all all animals have a two-hemispheric brain. And so this th that's really the, the scientific focus of this particular book. Right. And he and he's, wants to take the the best science seriously. And he's not a silly one saying Mars and Venus, left hemisphere, right hemisphere, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Yeah, the RT type or the scientific type, there's a lot of really uh, cheap and um, ignorant use of hemispheric division. Right. Now, here, here, here's a good quotation that, that tells you what the book is really about. I'm quoting, the central theme of this book is the importance of our disposition towards the world and one another as being fundamental in grounding what it is that we have come to have a relationship with rather than the other way around, end quote. In other words, it's the world outside of our heads that is there for us to respond to. Consequently, and I'm quoting again, the kind of attention we pay actually alters the world. We are literally partners in creation. This means we have a grave responsibility, a word that captures the reciprocal nature of the dialogue we have with whatever it is that exists apart from ourselves, and, end quote. This means we can patiently attend to what is out there, or we can quickly rush into mastering it. And that's basically a kind of fork in the road that McGilchrist is putting before us constantly. Yeah, I want to just draw attention to, he says, responsibility, which we just use in its meaning, but the word response is in it, so it is responding to something. Right. The world, responding to the world outside your head. I mean, that's that's the basic idea. Yeah, and I think the, the other thing to, to put right at the front here is that th from the way modernism thinks and acts, um, and I think a lot of people's um, instinctive understanding of science is that there are objective facts out there, not, not things, but facts out there. And so all knowledge is by definition neutral until we do something with it. And I think what he's getting at is more that even what we know, what we come to call a fact is already responding to something and responding in the sense of where we have directed our attention. So there isn't just uh, facts as knowledge are not neutral things. They're always a, res a result of attention that is paid. And so then if we want to understand why or how we pay attention, that's when we start looking at how the brain is structured and how it attends to things. That's right. And it's a really a question of how the mode in which it attends. As I was trying to say earlier, one can either patiently attend and take things in uh, uh, in a, almost a contemplative way. Or one can say, I'm a problem solver. This is the fact that I see, and I'm going to master it in my own interest. Damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. <laughs> and McGilchrist thinks that a lot of the damage we've done uh, in the modern world is comes from that latter attitude. Uh, but let me try to uh, circle back for a moment and connect McGilchrist with what Eric Kandel said about free will. 
although with a little bit of a dark twist. This is what um, uh, Gilchrist writes about this. We are also our unconscious. It will be objected that what we mean by words such as will, intend, choose is that the process is conscious. If it's not conscious, then we did not will it to happen. We did not intend it. It was not our choice. The fact that it is clear to all of us these days that our unconscious wishes, intentions, choices can play a huge part in our lives seems not to be noticed. End quote. Here's another quote on the same lines. Quote, we have then in the modern West come to believe that we have become free to choose our own values, our ideals, not necessarily wisely, of course, end quote. That is to say, not to put too fine a point on it, we think we have free will in doing cost-benefit analysis on consumer choices without any attention to the system of inputs which puts us in this position of th imagining we have free will in making consumer choices. And then if we complain that we're being manipulated by advertising, which skews our analysis to make a free, free, free choice that isn't really free in reality, then, well, our vaunted free choice is manipulated all the way up and all the way down in the contemporary consumerist economy, including matters religious. How do you like that? Yeah, well, I mean, that that's one huge area. I actually spent a lot of time lately thinking about delusion and the force of delusion and how badly we as human beings want things and are willing to believe when they're on offer to us. And I am thinking much more here ideologically or political ideal or um, religious or para-religious ideals. Um, there's, <laughs> there's so much openness to being deluded. And then once you have been caught into that, the cost of getting out of it again is enormous. I think yeah, about it's that humiliating. A lot. Yeah, it's, it's humiliating. humiliating. Yeah. Yeah. And I've said on the podcast several times, uh, you know, 20 years ago, I was suckered by um, uh, the Bush administration's um, um, propaganda that Iraq had WMDs. And coming to terms with the fact that I bought that and so forth has been one of the great humiliations of my life. But you got to own up to it. I was I, I was deluded, and um, and it was painful to come to that acknowledgement in my life. And that's just an example. Of On the flip side, the response can be to something like that to refuse to believe anything and to adopt a perfect cynicism, and that doesn't work either. People need to believe and trust to even function in the world. So it's not like right. you can put yourself in a safe place beyond delusion. But I think what all this is driving to the very frightening point of where is there safe ground to stand? <laughs> and so that's, I think, one of the things we're going to try to, to sort out here is if if this science and uh, indeed emerging philosophy from hemispheric distinction can at least give us some help, if not necessarily absolute security. Great. So let's get into the science that McGilchrist is, is expositing here about the differences between the two hemispheres of the brain. And his argument is basically is that each hemisphere has a different relationship to the world outside one's head. The right brain, he argues, is an open-ended receptor 
of the infinity of impulses transmitted to the brain through its body from the world. Uh, by contrast, the left brain is agent, focusing narrow concentration on particular problems in the organism's relationship to the world in order to solve the problem to its own benefit. And here's a direct quote. Where the left hemisphere's relationship with the world is one of reaching out to grasp and therefore to use it, the right hemisphere's appears to be one of just reaching out, just that, opening up, without purpose. In fact, one of the main differences between the ways of being of the two hemispheres is that the left hemisphere always has an end in view, a purpose or a use, and is much more the instrument of our conscious will than the right hemisphere, which, uh, as I said, is a kind of a contemplative posture towards the, um, the uh, manifold of existence that's out there imp impinging upon us. Mm. Yeah, I, I would really, uh, if, if listeners are at all intrigued by this, by all means, read the book because he goes through, McGilchrist goes through case after case, and not only with um, humans, though, of course, that's been a, a primary place of research on this, but even with, with other kinds of animals. And uh, I think one, one example from the animal kingdom, the, the non-human animal kingdom can help with this, is in birds, the... Um, the right hemisphere that is the the openness perceiving gestalt oriented thing um, is the the is keeping an eye uh, literally the 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 correlating eye on the whole surroundings while the left hemisphere that's the targeted instrumental hemisphere is pecking a seed or pulling up a worm and I think to me that's very helpful because there's an, an instant tendency and this you see it in pop psychology too to denigrate one hemisphere over the other. Like you could say, oh, the, the right hemisphere is so dreamy, you know, and mythological and, and you know, it's just what, what good is contemplation, right? Or you can say, oh, the left hemisphere is so controlling and it wants to use things and objectify things. But if you think of it in the case of the bird, the bird both has to, you know, focus on that seed so that it can grasp it in its beak and swallow it and be fed. And at the same time, it needs to be aware of its entire surroundings not least of all to avoid predators, but to, um, you know, keep an eye, literally just keep an eye, see what's out there. And I think that's helpful because there is a, there is, um, once you, once you see the distinction, you can start to think, well, one must be better than the other. What McGilchrist is arguing here is that they both do very specific and very necessary things. It's, and so his argument is going to be not that one is better, but how they relate hierarchically to each other is really for him the question at stake. Yeah, very good. And so what is that hierarchy? That goes back to the title of the book, The Master and Its Emissary, right? And the hierarchy in the hemispheric organization of the brain is that because our relationship to the world outside of our head is primary, the right brain receptiveness to the manifold of experience, to the, to the infinity of data streaming in upon us, is, is the master. That, that's, that's, that's what orients us. Uh, provides a sense of orientation to the world. And its instrument uh, is the left hemisphere, uh, because that's the, uh, hemisphere, that's the hemisphere which is responsible, as you were saying, for 
picking out the seed to nourish the bird, right? Um, so it has a narrowly focused and particular task um, that is uh, an emissary of the master, which is the right hemisphere's uh, openness to the surrounding environment. I think another way to, to make this distinction is that the right hemisphere is the integrating brain and the left hemisphere is the dissecting brain. Um, yeah, and good. so if you only dissect, you end up with dead things because that's what dissection does. It isolates each thing from its whole context, its web of relationships. Um, and so the, the integrative function is supposed to be taking all of these specifics that the left hemisphere dissector um, can really zero in on and, and, and indeed understand extremely well in and of itself. So like maybe a medical example would be um, a lot of uh, th this is this is the challenge of being a good doctor is there's no way one doctor can be a specialist in the spleen and the pancreas and the lungs and the circulatory system to the level of of, of detail and specificity and uh, assimilating all that knowledge that would help in a, you know, a rare case or an unusual problem that a generalist can't know. But you can also be treated by 12 different doctors, each with their own specialty that have no idea how their specialty relates to all the other organs and all the other practices of medicine, right. much less the fact that you, the patients, are a human being with emotions and family and a history that also have to be taken into an account. So Again, you need both of them, but the, the dissecting one alone leaves things dead and isolated. The integrative function that looks at all of these specifics and finds a way, perceives their interrelatedness, that is the one that should be the master. Yes. And now here's a very, you know, this is where he starts getting into um, an analysis of what's gone wrong in Western culture. Um, and it, it boils down to... Um, the brain's relationship to its own body. Um, because these contrasting attitudes uh, result in different ways of the brain thinking about its own embodiment. Um, he writes that the right hemisphere is responsible for our sense of the body as something we live, something that is part of our identity, and which is, if I can put it this way, he writes, the phase of intersection between ourselves and the world at large. So that's the right hemisphere. I perceive my body as me. It's not something other than me. It's me. And it's me in my intersection with the world outside my head. The, the left hemisphere, by contrast, for it, the body is something from which we can be relatively detached something in the world, like other things, devitalized, even a corpse. The left hemisphere, as you were saying, dissects and regards as if from a distance its own embodiment. Now, we can see that there's times in which the left brain is necessary. When I come in from the field and I have a thorn sticking in my foot, you know, I have to say objectively, what is paining me there, you know? And I have to investigate and, 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 and problem solve and so forth. And sometimes if the pain is so bad, I might even say, I wish I could cut my foot off. It's hurting so bad, right? Or something <laughs> like, like that. Um, it's, hurt, it's not me. It's hurting me. It's not, 
this body is betraying me. This body is dying on me. This body is d destined for death. It's not the real me. The left brain can kind of go off on a rant in that direction. And you're right, of course, he, he argues the two hemispheres uh, ideally collaborate. But in the modern West, the left brain agent, which is actually the emissary, as we explained, of the right brain master, have reversed roles in dangerous ways. Why don't you tell us about that, Sarah? Yeah, before I do, I just want to give a, a couple more examples because I think it's really important to see the 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 value of both and their interrelatedness. So I'm thinking about an athlete that um, what athletes do is they kind of um, look at their individual body parts, their muscles, they'll do specific training to develop their delts or their lats or whatever, and they'll, they'll drill in certain areas. But a really good athlete, when he is finally or she is, is finally out there to play the game or compete in the race, there's no more thinking of, okay, okay, is, where's my left foot? Now where's my right foot? But they become an integrated whole and everything simply works in this beautiful organic unity. But the, one of the ways they got there was by doing this very specific preparatory work. The same thing right. in the case of a musician, like, you know, the pianist will do uh, finger exercises or she will do the same um, scales over and over on her flute or oboe or whatever. And she'll study each section of her, of her piece of music to make sure she she really has it down in technical proficiency. But the performance that you enjoy listening to is when all of the drills have been left behind by the conscious mind and they are all integrated into one beautiful performance that brings something to it beyond just the, the recording of the notes on the page or what, you know, a computer could just as easily create the same notes. It's not at all the same thing. So I think those are really important because there are ways of looking, uh, in the case of the athlete, at the body as an object in a way that does not ultimately alienate the body from the person, but is in the service of an integrated person. And I think the musician example is really important, too, because we're going to start talking soon about machines. And I hope we'll talk about this more next year because I've, I'm more and more interested in what, what our machines and our tech do to us and our sense of self. But um, when he, uh, McGill Chris actually talks that when an instrumentalist, a musician, plays an instrument, um, the brain does not perceive the instrument as being other than the body. It actually becomes the body. The oboe is an extension of the body itself. And so, again, there's a, a way where the um, extension of the body by a machine um, or the, the specific attention paid to parts um, in an objectifying sense can be brought back to an integrating sense. So those are positive examples. But but then what happens when the um, the bodybuilder's only desire is to have marvelously huge pecs in order to um, suit a certain self-image or compete in the world in a certain way? Um, or what does it mean when we start to... Um, cut and sculpt and pluck our bodies to such a degree because the um, the sexual marketplace demands a certain look and suddenly your body is a liability, not you. And you have to remake it and objectify it and be angry at it for not being what it is. Um, in those kind of cases, what McGilchrist starts to explore then is um, disorders that seem to be um, 
uh, unique to the modern world or massively on the rise in the modern world. He mentions in particular um, anorexia, autism, and schizophrenia. Um, Incidentally, schizophrenia appears not to even exist before about 300 years ago, maybe less. There is, from what I understand, there's absolutely nothing in any written record of any culture that corresponds to schizophrenia as we know it today. And, um, you know, one way of of looking at it, he says, is uh, uh, seeing everything in atomized isolation and not being able to integrate. That's one way of looking at what schizophrenia is. Um, But if you think about just the, the... historic trend of the machine age industrialized West that continually can divorce each individual human person, which is also a human body, from any larger cultural, familial, social context. Um, That is that dissecting process of the left hemisphere that seems to be gaining a kind of radical ascendancy over any kind of integrative function. Um, Or the integrators have become toxic ones like totalitarian ideologies that Hannah Arendt so powerfully described in her book on the origins of totalitarianism. Wow, that's great, Sarah. Yeah, the, the, That's basically the argument of the book, isn't it? That for a variety of reasons, and this will segue immediately into discussion of the Reformation and its consequences for us. For a variety of reasons, the modern West has seen the dangerous ascendancy of the left-brain agent. Um, and so that it's kind of reversed the proper role of the hierarchy where the right brain, the receptive brain, is the master, and the left brain, the instrumental brain, uh, the agent brain, has become uh, in its place, usurped its place. And this is what he says. We can say fairly clearly what left brain primacy's world would look like. It would be relatively mechanical, an assemblage of more or less disconnected parts. It would be relatively abstract and disembodied, relatively distanced from fellow feeling, given to explicitness, utilitarian in ethics, overconfident of its own take on reality, and lacking insight into its problems. The neuropsychological evidences that these are all aspects of the left hemisphere world as compared to the right, end quote. It's very interesting how he he talks about, um, I I think, and this is where we're going to get a little more theological, about both left and right hemispheres of the brains and their forms of attention have their own kind of agenda. <laughs> and they they pursue different things. And um, in, in good health, they have this right relationship to one another. So what's interesting is how did it happen, as he asserts, that the left hemisphere's way of thinking and doing um, did this usurping function? And he's, he actually attempts to, to chart it out historically, which... Um, is both it's both suggestive and there's lots of things to argue about with it but I think just as a thought experiment we should entertain it because to me it's it's more of um it's more of a tragedy than a crime um, that we see unfolding because I think what what, what what we can get into this now, he starts really with the Renaissance and the idea that um, actually because of the um, uh, medieval and Christian, confidence 
in the um, wholeness and integrity of God's creation, it allowed a kind of focus and delight in the particular. And I think this actually, the whole left-right hemisphere thing actually speaks back to, I think, what is the oldest philosophical question is, what is the relationship between the one and the many, or the universal and the particular? And so there is something about the the Christian and European conditions that allowed in good faith the pursuit of the particular and the specific and each of the many that are contained in the one. But what happened is that it kind of What it did is unleashed an ability to control those particulars by understanding them better. And essentially what happens is what human beings understand and control, they will control. And then they will manipulate and then they will extend. Yeah, I think that's right. The the religious source of this concern for the particular is deeply rooted in the uh, biblical tradition. Uh, which always proceeds from the particular to the universal, from the God of the Exodus to the creator of all that is not God, from the resurrection of Jesus to the resurrection of the dead in the last day, from the particular to the universal. And to make that more concrete for people, just think of the precious parable of Jesus about the one lost sheep, the shepherd who leaves behind the the flock of 99, and goes on a search and rescue mission for the one lost sheep. And we have the, you know, the art that pictures the shepherd carrying it back joyfully on his shoulders. Yeah, or why why do we say that the death of the one man, God-man, Jesus, and his resurrection saves everybody else? <laughs> Within Christian logic, it it works. I think in, in uh, the, the right hemispheric logic of Christian faith, it works. But then if you try to figure out, well, uh, people often end up asking, like, what's the mechanism, though? Like, what's the rule? What's the law? How does it happen? I realize now those are very much left hemisphere questions about something that needs a right hemisphere answer. Yeah, and, and he'll actually make this illustration later, that the real presence of Christ's body in the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper is something that the right brain can appreciate just in being said so. Uh, Whereas the left brain immediately protests, how is this possible? Explain to me. (laughs) Give me a theory that can explain how God can be man or how bread and wine can be the body and blood of Christ or something like that. And again, sometimes it's really good to ask those questions because the provided you know, gestalt answers are actually faulty or distorted. And the, the left hemisphere's investigation can help sort out and, and clear away misapprehension. So it's not like the left, left hemisphere is bad. It's only as if it, if it always has the final answer or if its questions are the only valid questions. And I think that's what McGilchrist is trying to say is we, we are, our culture is tending to think only left hemisphere answers and questions are even valid and the right hemisphere is completely silenced and invalidated. Yeah, let's try to, I agree with that. Let's try to focus now more specifically on neurotheology, especially with some some suggestions and insights from from McGilchrist. Um, Here's one of his basic, I think, basic themes to start off with. I'm quoting, When we decide not to worship divinity, we do not stop worshiping. We merely find something else less worthy to worship. 
there has been a parallel movement towards the possible rehabilitation of religious practices as utility as left-brain functions, then 15 minutes of Zen meditation a day may make you a more effective money broker, or improve your blood pressure, or lower your cholesterol. He's being pretty sarcastic, right? Yes, by, yes. Then he says, by contrast, the 2,000-year-old Western tradition of Christianity provides, whether one believes it or not, an exceptionally rich myth. Uh, he, I use this term in the technical sense, he explains, making no judgment here of its truth or otherwise. Uh, an exceptionally rich myth for understanding the world in our relationship with it. Why? It conceives the divine other that is not indifferent to, but on the contrary engaged, vulnerable, because of that engagement. The vulnerability of the divine, God's suffering alongside his creation. But this admission is not possible to the Promethean left hemisphere, he writes. Hmm. Christianity, which is one in one sense the most powerful myth in advocacy of the incarnate world, and of the value of the individual that the world has ever known, has ended up a force for conformity, abstraction, and the suppression of independent thought. Oh dear, Oof. unquote. How did this Ouch. happen? Yeah. You know, it, it, his example there of the 15 minutes of Zen meditation reminds me of the kind of vogue to bring back the Sabbath and Sabbath rest, um, but not in like the old Christian Sabbatarian version, but in the you'll be a more efficient worker if you give yourself rest. You have to rest. Then you can work more. <laughs> right. <laughs> or yeah, exactly. or the or the health research that says, well, religious people live longer and have better health spans. So like what? So I should start believing a religion so I'm healthier? Like nobody nobody can believe a religion that way. So yeah, it it it's a great side effect. I'm not objecting to that, but it's it's so it's it's a very utilitarian left left hemisphere approach to something that cannot be approached that way. We should point out that McGilchrist, of course, is a um I'm not I'm, I think he's an Englishman, um but he's certainly a, a resident of the United Kingdom. Is he Scottish or English? Do you remember? Well, I mean, the name is certainly Scottish. The accent on my audiobook was definitely English, but uh, and I don't, I don't know that he avows himself a religious person, but he has a kind of respect for it, which he he implies is not typical among the the science, much of the scientific community or scientific community. I should maybe say. he ac he actually has very, I think, very important and insightful things to say about the Reformation and its consequences. How did how did how did Luther's God, the God who, who comes deep in the flesh, and in his own the person of his own son, bears the sin of the world and its consequences? How did a God that deeply involved uh, in humanity's woe? How did that how did that mythos that he was talking about? How did that become a force for a conformity abstraction? And suppression of independent thinking. Yeah, you should walk us through this. I was actually impressed. Usually when I, I read non-specialists on Luther, I'm extremely frustrated at how badly they have misunderstood him. But I thought for not uh, being a theologian deeply invested in this topic, McGilchrist had a quite perceptive and thoughtful take on Luther's Reformation. Yeah, it's kind of a more nuanced version of Brad, Brad Gregory's unintended Reformation thesis. 
that the, uh, contrary to intention, the Reformation unleashed these forces of the left brain dominance of the modern world. And uh, here's uh, McGilchrist's version. What is so compelling is that the motive force behind the Reformation was the urge to regain authenticity, with which one can only be profoundly sympathetic. The path it soon took was that of the destruction of all means whereby the authentic could have been recaptured. In the unfolding of events, Luther could be seen as a somewhat tragic figure. He himself was tolerant, conservative, his concern being for authenticity and return to experience, as opposed to reliance on authority, his attitude to the place of images and worship and in the life of the church was balanced and reasonable, yet despite this he found himself unleashing forces of destruction that were out of his control, forces which set about destroying the very things he valued, forces against which he invade finally without effect. This is uh, the stripping of Duffy's thesis about the stripping of the altars, about uh, how Luther's in, in Volkovitz sermons against, against the uh, iconoclasts did not more widely prevail, but unleashed iconoclasm throughout the Protestant world. Well, and how, how quickly the, the religious questions were instrumentalized by princes and armies and electors and popes and generals looking to accomplish their own ends that really had nothing whatsoever to do with what Luther was about. And because those forces were unleashed, all religious players were forced into an, e an uneasy brokerage with the political powers or they would have simply been exterminated. So yes, I think I think seeing the story as tragic is actually more insightful than, you know, like Luther, kind of a, a more typical uh, version of this is, you know, Luther invented modernity, he wrecked everything, he threw out tradition and authority and, and um, you know, just created the, the, the totally atomized individual that we have today in the 21st century. That is simply not at all accurate. And McGilchrist himself dates the beginning of this before, before the Reformation, at least in the Renaissance. And obviously there are things within the medieval culture that gave rise even to the Renaissance. Right. And, you know, it, this is really kind of a argument that's made by uh, um, traditional or neo-traditional Catholics, uh, Brad Gregory being an example of that. And uh, what, in terms of the Renaissance, though, what, what McGilchrist sees is Luther had a holistic anthropology. That is to say, it based deeply in Augustine, the idea that the human person is finally a lover, uh, uh, someone who does not have life in and of him or herself, but must seek life outside of itself. And so it is driven by desire. So the question about the human being as an integrated whole is never what do you, uh, whether you love, it's what do you love, whether it's worthy of love, whether it's worthy of love. When we decide not to worship divinity, we do not stop worshiping, we do not stop desiring. We merely find something less worthy to worship, something less worthy to desire. And uh, he argues that um, Luther 
of course, acknowledge the difference between the inner world and the outer world, uh, the relationship I have to myself and the relationship myself has to the world outside of itself. And he, uh, he decried uh, the emptiness uh, when outer and inner worlds are divorced. But his followers, Miguel Christ writes, took that to mean that the outer world was in itself empty, that therefore the only authenticity lay in the inner world alone. I think that's a very insightful critique. It's the seed of the Cartesian revolution's invidious dualism between the expressive subject and the inert object out there. And here's a direct quote again. What I wish to emphasize is the transition within the Reformation from what are initially the concerns of right hemisphere to those of the left hemisphere, how a call for authenticity and a reaction against the undoubtedly empty and corrupt nature of some practices of the medieval Roman Catholic Church, an attempt, therefore, to return from a form of representation to the true presence of religious feeling, turned rapidly into a further entrenchment of inauthenticity, end quote. I think there's a lot of a lot of truth in that. Um, I don't I don't think it would have accelerated to the degree it had if if um, there had not been the increasing discovery of how to control and manipulate with machines and tools of measurement and devices. Um, the, I think that experiments philosophically could have been run. This is, you know, counterfactuals are useless, right? But there, there's a way of, of um, advancing that left hemispheric um, attention to detail and mastery. Um, but I think th there's a, a feedback loop, a very rapid feedback loop that happens the more you get things outside of yourself. It, it's almost like the more we have machines that do things outside of ourself, the more we reject all things outside of ourself and double down on this idea of, of what I am. Like you said, the my inner authenticity is, is the only thing. I mean, I was even thinking, Dad, as we were talking about this, about if, with Luther's holistic anthropology, I hadn't thought of it this way before, but that's one reason why he affirms married sexuality, that the human body is a desiring body. And um, instead of vilifying and rejecting that, I mean, he, he still had, you know, a, a fairly traditional view of the, you know, problematic nature of sexual desire. Nevertheless, the right way was to integrate it into the whole life. And the best way to do that was in the context of marriage and family and making and raising children. And I just think how radically different that affirmation of sexuality is from now in which um, the, the goal seems to be to seek out your completely self-centered sexual identity. I am this. And then whatever your sexuality might be called forth by an actual living authentic relationship with another person is, is hardly even thought of. It, it's, it's almost an instrumentalizing of sexual desire. And in this pursuit of, of, even though it's your body or outside of you, the only real thing is, is what you feel inside of you. So I, I think we see a lot of different ways in which this integrated vision of Luther was distorted in so many different directions. Well, sure, and, and even the, the quest for inner authenticity 
uh, when it becomes systematically detached from the world outside of my head and becomes simply a function of my own self-representation, uh, uh, then becomes the essence of um, what, you know, uh, was called in, in modern sociology expressive individualism. You know, that I, I objectify myself by creating representations of myself that then I can project in public, right? And that kind of subjectivism and expressivism is actually the essence of inauthenticity because it <laughs> is, has no actual relationship to anything outside of your own head. It's just a, a game you're playing inside of your own mind. And there's another technological amplification here with that search for authenticity through self-representation through internet avatars. And then what you think is outside of your head is a completely faceless, disembodied, anonymous mob on online. And, and so, again, there's this technological doubling down and amplifying of what's already a, a unhealthy trend. So let's... Let me let's take this discussion right back to Lu McGilchrist's discussion of Luther, because I think he really nails it, uh, and he gets Luther exactly right on the difference between Latin verb uh, "est" it is, and Latin verb "significat" it signifies, which Luther famously said about the bread and the wine: "The bread and the wine is does not signify, but is the body and blood of Christ." And here's what McGilchrist says. The visual image is not just something non-divine, idolatrously representing the divine. It is something divine. That's the difference between the belief that the bread and the wine represent the body and blood of Christ and the belief that they are, in some important sense, the body and blood of Christ. That is, uh, technically speaking, as metaphors of it. Uh, that's so he really he really gets um, something that's at the heart uh, of Luther's own theology, and of course it makes Zwingli the bad guy, which always makes us Lutherans happy. If only our Calvinist friends would repent of their Zwinglianism and <sighs> become closer to us in that respect, right? It is a consummation devoutly to be wished. Let's uh, let's try to draw some conclusions from contemporary neuroscience and neurophilosophy uh, for, uh, I think our discussion is going to continue into the next and final podcast of the year. We'll have more to say about McGilchrist, but at this point, let's start drawing this one to a close and draw some conclusions. All right. Sounds good. You start. Let me start with, I'll start with this. If we try to market Christianity in the world of today made by the left brain usurpation of primacy. We instrumentalize faith into a self-help therapy and ministry into a chaplaincy of the corporate capitalist fused with state power juggernaut that is actually chewing up embodied human beings. Then uh, theology becomes ambulance-chasing stratagems for dying churches. Actually, the church is too much bother to, there, there's no there's no payoff, no sufficient payoff, if that's what you're trying to sell. So you're saying this is bad. <laughs> Did you get that impression? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, I think this Just is very a suspicion. bad. So you're saying we shouldn't be advertising Sabbath in order to make more efficient drones for the machine. Exactly. Yes. Okay. Drones for the hive. I guess that was the metaphor you meant to say, right? Um, not, yeah. not gadgets for the machine, right? Or... <laughs> Cogs in the wheel. Yes, drones Cogs for the, the hive. Wheel. Sure. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What do you think? Well, I'm just thinking about like how how then do you speak outward? You know, so there there is a kind of like, well, it's here. People can come find us when everything else is broken for them and they can come looking for us. And and surely, yes, let us let us embrace the wounded when they stumble into our house. But but how do we speak outward in a way that is intelligible, but does not concede the faulty terms of the debate? I think that's the problem of of ad hoc apologetics here. And um, I'm not absolutely sure I have many good answers, but Reading this book reminded me of something, and maybe we can extract something out of it. When I was in graduate school, I had my the only real extended crisis of faith I've had in my life. And I, I don't say that like I'm such a, a firm believer. It's it's Most of the time, it's impossible for me not to believe. So make of that what you will. But there was a period where I went through a lot of doubt, and I've been trying to remember what exactly it was, because it's not so clear to me anymore. But the way I think I could characterize it now with Mil- McGilchrist's concepts is that I had to allow the left hemisphere to completely dissect and then once isolated from each other, attack every tenet of the Christian faith. Because that is, I mean, that is what um, a lot of education is. I was in graduate school. Um, that's what a lot of science does is to, to, you know, get down to each independent variable and try to test it against everything else. And I think I'd always been holding that off because I was scared that maybe if, if the whole thing was dissected, it would die, which is what happens to things when they're dissected. So I think I had to just let the full attack happen of with all of science, uh, modern, postmodern scientific assaults on the Christian faith, which are, I'm sure, well known to you, Dad, and to all of our listeners. And so I had to let it go. It was let the thing happen. It was very frightening and upsetting. And then I got to the end of that process and I didn't it didn't work. <laughs> and I, uh, on some level, I had to say, okay, I suppose I could argue that, um, yeah, religion is just, uh, fulfills, a, a, you know, my, my need for comfort in the face of fear. And that God is just a projection of, of human ideals, a la Feuerbach. And it, it is completely ludicrous to say this dead Jewish guy 2000 years ago was brought back to life, but not like a resuscitation, like life beyond, on the other side, of death, whatever that's supposed to mean. Okay, I'll let me just grant all of that as being true. Um, why does it not actually persuade me that God does not exist and the gospel isn't true? And I never came up with a very good answer to that, except that finally, you know, having let the left hemisphere run riots, it lost its power and I picked up and moved on. But now I think what I could say is maybe what had to happen is once I let the dissecting process run its course, it can't integrate. It can't, it doesn't actually give very good answers. Uh, It only gives these isolated bits and pieces. And then maybe having let that happen, the the right hemisphere started to reintegrate. And that is where the, the truth ended up being. So if I just think of it purely from my human side of, of thinking and feeling my way with and through the Christian faith, um, 
it works. And I believe it in this um, integrative sense, even if I can still, and I, I think it's it's a useful tool. I am a scholar, an academic, you know, I, I can pull things out and analyze them in the, the dissecting sort of way. But I think maybe the way I come to theology now and maybe why I also do a lot of fiction and I, this concept of transgenre theology, looking at theology and experiencing it in a lot of different genres as being essential to understanding it properly. I think I can say on the human side, that is the integrative function. So if that's the case, I think then the question is reaching out to people, not by attacking one isolated bit of their faulty worldview or scientism or um, asserting the truth of one isolated bit of our set of data points of our faith, but somehow doing this more integrating and holistic thing, which I suspect is really what people are lacking so powerfully in their lives today. So yeah, how to do evangelism and apologetics from that integrating holistic perspective is right. my I would I would say evangelism and apology I would simply say do theology theology is critical dogmatics critical understanding of the assertions of the gospel Okay, but Dad, that's yeah. how you and I do theology, but I cannot tell but, you how many whoa, people whoa. I've met, including pastors, see it as purely dissecting in order to tell you that you're a heretic and you don't belong here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's. Uh, uh, let me finish my thought okay. <laughs> before you before you jump all over me like that. <laughs> what I'm what I'm really trying to say is the opposite. That that the way you and I exemplify theology, we don't avoid the problems. We don't evade the difficulties. We're we're right out there with the uh, with the uh, objections and issues and questions that people have. Uh, we explore topics like neuroscience, right, uh, in order to, to meet uh, contemporary people uh, where, where we should meet them, exactly where they're at and so forth. Um, and so uh, I would just like to answer the question in, in this way. Uh, I mean, we should exemplify in our theology, uh, in our practice as pastors and, and, and so forth, we should exemplify the kind of theology that invites questions and invites uh, uh, disputation and, and deals with difficulties and so forth and doesn't run away from them. Uh, uh, but I would say more basically this. In the Catechism, Luther describes the Holy Spirit's work as bringing us into the church where the Holy Spirit can proclaim and instruct us in the gospel. Brings us into the church where the Holy Spirit can instruct us and explain, and explain to us the good news of God. Now, I, what I think that means is that we have to get away from all kinds of cheesy apologetics like you were saying, here's our data point, this is why it's true, and trumps your data point or something like that. We have to take that little apocalyptic parable that I love so much about Christ breaking into the strong man's house to bind him and liberate his captives. How? By capturing their desire. And this Christ act of liberation, which captures human desire, is to be proclaimed to unfree wills informed by theology, which is not free thinking, but freed thinking. And how does that actually work? By the beauty of liturgical and sacramental worship, 
McGilchrist's insight into Luther saying it is the body of Christ, not simply a representation of the body of Christ, coupled with preaching that moves the heart and opens the mind to the God of the gospel, in the process creating a caring community of Christ's people as an island of sanity and healing in our increasingly dehumanized world. So, that's how I would answer the question. And I would say in all of this, we have neuroscience on our side. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I, I would back that up. But to the what I think is so important about this hemispheric distinction, and I, I this is something I have, have thought about so much since I first read the book and continue to chew on a lot, is that I think there's still there still needs to be an integrative function or which means that you can't do it. I'm saying this very badly. Okay. What I mean is like, yes, I, I dismiss also the, the um, evangelical apologetics that are data point versus data point, as well as the um, uh, naked appeal to emotions that are artificially hyped up in worship. But you and I spend more of our time among the so-called liberal Protestant churches where the invitation to questions and discussions and nuance ends up being an excuse for never asserting anything at all. I think because sure. the, only, the only model is an assertion is one isolated data point used as a hammer to thwack other people over the head. And and I think one of the problems is that, and then often I think like a, like liturgical style becomes a compensation, a fake integration for people who don't understand the doctrine or don't actually um, live in and out of scripture. It, it's um, it's a fake integration. So I think it's it's easier to dismiss the the revivalistic and um, cheesy apologetic tradition, but I think there's there's an equally um, artificial and atomizing tendency on the the liberal progressive Protestant side or whatever that I, I think you and I need to develop a clearer sense of how to how to counter that as well as offer a richer alternative well uh, the the richer alternative is simply this assertion that is at the heart of every uh, worship service this is my body given for you this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you. That's the assertion that breaks through all of this. And fu fundamentally, when it comes right down to it, it's the one thing that integrates our lives, the one thing that integrates um, um, the, uh, the questioning left hemisphere with the receptive right hemisphere to make a unified human being um, as a newborn child of God or something like that. That's what I would say. Anyway. That's why Luther talked about the the sacraments is deliberately given to feed your 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 ears, your soul, your minds in the only way it can be fed through words addressed to it, and at the same time your body, which can only receive physical things because it's a physical thing. So the the point is, you do have to both hear, "This is my body given for you," and then you have to like get the bread and the wine and eat it. There, there isn't it is it isn't one or the other. It's absolutely both. Okay, good. I like that very much, Sarah. Good. So let's conclude and with a question. What about the image of God? We began this podcast by asking whether there's a collision between the traditional Christian doctrine of humanity made in the image of God for likeness of God and neuroscience. Is there a collision? 
Well, this is how I would answer it. Let's see what you think. Neuroscience puts the nail in the coffin on all attempts to found the image of God on a special quality of the human being, since it discovers that we are animals all the way up and all the way down. And I would make this side comment. Anti-humanism today is the revenge on all such conceited anthropocentrisms with their inflated claims for human uniqueness, especially in our rationality, which have privileged Western arrogance, complacency, and naivete at the expense of colonized peoples and the exploited earth. For Christian theology, Jesus Christ is the image of God, and it is in the light of his humanity that we can say why every human body is a precious creature of God and valuable as such and per se, worthy of love which dignifies and awakens persons to the God who is creating and calling in order to redeem and fulfill. All right. Well, that is a very, very well thought out thesis. I'm not sure mine is quite so well thought out. But I think if if the main point is that the the reasoning, calculating ability, um, or even the dissecting ability, then clearly all animals have this in their own version of it. So isolating that to the expense of everything else human does seem to me to be fundamentally faulty. But there is clearly something that about humans that is not like other animals. And so I think that is what we're going to be pursuing in our next episode on the image of God. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.